Hi, this is John Eldridge, and welcome to the Ransomed Heart podcast. What we are doing over this series is exploring the personality of Jesus from my new book, Beautiful Outlaw. There is absolutely no one and nothing that is more captivating than Jesus when you can see him as he really is. And to know Jesus as he really is, is to fall in love with him. So what we're doing in this series, I am reading some excerpts from a new book called Beautiful Outlaw, discovering the playful, extravagant, disruptive personality of Jesus. And so let's explore Jesus together. Most people go through their entire lives without anyone ever speaking honest, loving, direct words to the most damaging issues in their lives. Pause for a moment and count the times this has been done for you. Better, pause and count the times you have offered this to someone you love. We chit-chat. We spend our days at the level of conversation as substantive as smoke. We dance around one another like birds in a mating ritual— bobbing, ducking, puffing out our chest, flapping our wings, circling one another, now advancing, now retreating. If we filmed a week of it in time-lapse photography, it would make the Discovery Channel. Let's be honest. Why aren't we more honest with each other? Because it will cost us. Socrates didn't exactly get a warm reception for telling the truth. John the Baptist got his head handed to him on a platter for telling it like it is kill the messenger. We don't want to pay that bill. If we speak as honestly as Jesus does, if we even venture into the hallowed sanctuary of someone else's precious sin, it is going to make the relationship messy, to say the least. Why won't you tell your mother-in-law that she is a fearful, controlling woman? Why won't you tell your pastor that his children hate him, hate his sanctified hypocrisy? Why won't you tell your best friend that most of the time they are selfish and self-centered and that you carry all the burden of maintaining the relationship? We're cowards. That's why. As I push a little more deeply into my own motives, I realize I just don't care enough. I know what it's like to be with so-and-so. I see their effect on others, but I pretend I don't see. I turn a blind eye. I probably make a dozen choices a day not to see what I do see. We all do. And why is that, really? Because to risk speaking as Jesus does takes time. Because then I'm involved. Because who knows what their reaction will be. Because, because, because. What I'm saying is I don't really care enough to risk the tension, backlash, penalties, or rejection. Of course, then it all stays bottled up inside me, fermenting like champagne. So when the cork does pop, I speak out of irritation, exasperation, or anger. The tone of which is essentially, pull yourself together. Stop making my life so hard. Oh, sure. Some people speak honest words, but their motives are usually despicable. And so our collective silence, carefully justified as being polite or not wanting to be judgmental or whatever, our silence dooms each of us to remain that hardened Pharisee or controlling Martha 
for the rest of our lives. Jesus is the boy in the tale of the emperor's new clothes, while everyone else fawns and feigns, pretending, looking the other way. He says, um, excuse me, but did you know that you are buck naked? What if at this moment you have a terminal cancer but don't know it? The disease is silently ravaging your body while precious days slip by in which you could be taking action. Now, what if your doctor knew but didn't want to tell you because it would inconvenience him? You'd sue him for malpractice. What if your family knew but didn't tell you because they didn't want to upset you? Or they soften the news of your test results to the point that you don't understand the gravity of your situation. You would be furious. I'm not stunned by Jesus' words to either of his hosts. I'm stunned by the courage and love this takes. The man shoots straight. Sometimes he's playful. Sometimes he's fierce. The next moment, he's generous. This is the beauty of his disruptive honesty. You can count on Jesus to tell you the truth in the best possible way for you to hear it. One disciple seems ready to enlist. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus says the man has no idea what he's signing up for. Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. From Matthew 8. The next moment, another disciple tries a polite dodge from service. Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus tells him to climb on board immediately. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. To Nicodemus, who, as a scholar and teacher, really shouldn't be so clueless, Jesus says, You are Israel's teacher, and you do not understand these things? From John chapter 3. The Pharisees claim Abraham. Jesus says, If you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things that Abraham did. From John 8. Judas says to him, Surely, not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. From Matthew 26. Jesus is a straight shooter. Sometimes he shoots so straight, it practically straightens you out as it passes through you. Last summer, my wife, my friends, and my board of directors urged me to take a sabbatical. A host of issues were involved physically. I was exhausted, dangerously so. There was a nasty stomach problem that couldn't be diagnosed and wouldn't go away. Emotionally, I was angry with people. I'd withdrawn from most of my relationships. I also noticed that I didn't live with much hope. I just threw myself at each day, trying to get on top of things. There was a severity I had long used with myself that had begun to creep into the way I handled others. I read in the scripture how Jesus was described as praying with loud cries and tears, and I wondered why I never prayed like that. My prayers felt mechanical. Anyhow, I was in bad shape. I knew this had to be more than a vacation. The sabbatical would be wasted if I didn't get to the bottom of the issues that caused me to need a sabbatical in the first place. It needed to be open-heart surgery. But my inner world felt like an oriental rug of issues, so intertwined I couldn't sort it out. Early one morning, while I was still lying in bed, looking at the ceiling and asking God to come for me, Jesus asked, 
Would you like to know what it is? Oh, yes, please, Lord, I said. This is all one thing. And then a pause for effect, and I'm thinking, one thing? This is all one thing? You don't look to me. You look to yourself. The truth of it was indisputable the moment Jesus finished speaking. All the years of striving, sacrifice, loneliness, heroic exertion, so much of what I took to be noble about my life was suddenly exposed as godless self-reliance, utterly godless. I felt naked, like a man lying on an examining table who had just been shown the x-rays of his bone cancer. It was horrifying and wonderful. Finally, the truth. What would it be like to have someone in your life who knows you intimately, loves you regardless, and is willing to be completely honest with you? (laughs) Yes, it would be a little unnerving, certainly disruptive, but doesn't part of you also crave it? Most people have to hire this. They pay a therapist to be honest with them because neither their friends nor family have the capacity or the willingness to do it well. No matter, get this however you can. The more we realize that this sort of disruptive honesty is exactly what we need and more difficult to come by than a winning lottery ticket, the more we will fall in love with Jesus for the way he offers it. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what you're going to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. From Matthew 10. Well, this is quite a motivational speech. My goodness, Jesus is sending his boys out for their first solo flight. This is Eisenhower sending the troops off for D-Day. But they get no Henry V at Agincourt inspiration here, no band of brothers, no Churchill's finest hour. But maybe this is just what they need to hear. Consider the alternative. What if Jesus told them, everything's going to be fine, just love and everyone will love you? And then when reality hit the fan and they found themselves bitterly hated and persecuted, They would feel betrayed. One of the things I most respect about Jesus is his inability to speak nonsense. There is none of that vague Eastern mysticism such as you find in Menke. A person of great love has no enemies in the world. Jesus Christ proves that a ridiculous statement. Or the nihilistic practice doing nothing and all will be well of Lao Tzu. There are no Ben Franklin colloquialisms like a penny saved is a penny earned. Think of it. What if Jesus was primarily known for saying something like, remember to stop and smell the roses? Proof that you have encountered a distinct personality in Jesus is his ability in one tender moment to say the kindest thing and the most startling words the next. 
What do you make of someone who can lovingly whisper, Then neither do I condemn you, and then shout, Snakes! Reptiles! Sons of hell! Now keep in mind, there is a world of difference between being offensive and saying something that offends. It is a matter of location. Where, in fact, does the offense lie? The man who makes a racial slur betrays something ugly in him. The friend who says you've had too much to drink spares you something ugly in you. A foghorn is offensive at a dinner party. It is the sweetest sound in the world for a ship lost in a storm. Jesus' words are not offensive. It is something in us that is offended. We love it when he goes gunning for the Pharisees. Hypocrites, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are from Matthew twenty three fifteen, Holy cow, did you know Jesus used expressions like son of hell? That'd get you kicked out of most churches. But if it weren't for his brutal honesty, we would still be laboring under the weight of all that crushing religious nonsense. If Jesus didn't shoot straight with them, we would be disappointed. It would be hard to respect him. It's when he turns his sights on us that we begin to squirm. And well, we should. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Also, Matthew 7. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. From John 14. This is, without question, the great offense of Jesus Christ, his exclusivity. To make sure we understand this, what he is saying is that he alone is the means to heaven. No one comes to the one true God except through him. Offensive as the claim may be, we still have to deal with it. Either it is arrogant or it is true. No other leader of the world's religions makes such an audacious claim. It is a line in the sand that has caused many Christians' embarrassment, particularly those trying to win acceptance in our all-roads-lead-to-Rome postmodern world. F.F. Bruce wrote a helpful book years ago entitled The Hard Sayings of Jesus, in which he tackled many of the cannon shots fired off by Christ, plucking out your eye, pearls before swine. But I'm sorry to report that he did not address these claims, which are clearly the hardest of all. Now, yes, yes, I understand that many men have used these statements in a spirit quite apart from the spirit of Jesus Christ. Yes, many times it seems as though those who preach on hellfire wish that you would go there. But that fact has no bearing whatsoever on the actual existence of hellfires. If they do exist, 
It would be a demented evil not to warn you, way beyond malpractice. The religious spirit has used the question of hell to distort left and right, so it would be good to pause and clarify what the heart of God is on these matters. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9 Not wanting anyone to perish. God doesn't want to lose a single human soul. In fact, those hellfires weren't even created for man. They were created for the devil and his demons. Matthew 25, verse 41. Jesus isn't secretly hoping that you'll go there. Listen to his lament over his own stubborn people. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Luke thirteen thirty four. Jesus' heart of love is not diminished by the fact that some people will actually choose hell over surrendering to God. He weeps over it. He warns, urges, pleads, performs miracles. As they nail him to the timbers, he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Because if they don't find forgiveness, it's going to be a mighty black day of reckoning. Jesus prays for them, prays they will find mercy. Most attempts to convince the world that Jesus was a really great guy, not mean and dogmatic like you-know-who, usually meaning Republicans and the religious right, carry their task all the way to the point of hiding or eliminating the exclusivity of Jesus. Yes, well, but he didn't mean all that. These are doctrines added later by the church. Practically the opposite is true. Jesus said it very clearly. It is the church who has often tried to explain it away. Thomas Jefferson couldn't bring himself to believe the miracles of Jesus. He felt they were an embarrassment to his otherwise profound ethical teaching. So, he took a pair of kitchen scissors and cut those passages out of his personal Bible. Many folks do the same when it comes to Jesus's exclusive claims. But Jesus made those claims, every one of them, just as surely as he did those miracles. The church has held it to be a matter of orthodoxy since its creation at Pentecost. I don't know that we fully appreciate what a gift it is to have someone so immovable. We take our relativism casually, where and when we find it convenient. Cream and sugar? Sexual preference? Universalism? But what if everything was relative, including reality itself? Remember your last nightmare. Remember what a relief it was to wake and find you had been dreaming? To come out of a night terror is one of the most profound reliefs common to mankind. Sitting bolt upright with a gasp or a scream, you discover that you are safe in your own bed. Your whole body relaxes. Your breathing slows. Your whirling brain cools down. You have been 
saved, so to speak, by reality. Now, imagine what it would be like if you were never, ever able to wake from your nightmares. Like being tumbled under the waves and never being able to find the surface again. There are many poor souls living out such torment in our mental institutions. Those who have overdosed on drugs can tell you how horrifying this is. One night, many years ago, a friend and I took five times the amount of hallucinogens then being used by recreational drug idiots. I thought I would never climb out of it. When I woke on a stinking cot in a jail cell, I was utterly overjoyed. That there is a reality for us to wake to is a gift beyond words. Whether or not we choose to face that reality is quite up to us. Truth or reality, as Scott Peck said, is avoided when it is painful. We can revise our maps only when we have the discipline to overcome that pain. To have such discipline, we must be totally dedicated to the truth. That is to say, we must always hold truth as best we can determine it to be more important, more vital to our self-interest than our comfort. Conversely, we must always consider our personal discomfort relatively unimportant and, indeed, even welcome it in the service of the search for truth. Mental health is an ongoing process of dedication to reality at all costs. Thus, the startling, disruptive, and sometimes brutal honesty of Jesus. The world is stone drunk and raging at Jesus because he's trying to keep us from taking the car. Who is being unreasonable? The spirit of our day is a soft acceptance of everything, except deep conviction in anything. This is where Jesus will suddenly confront the world as a great rock confronts the river flowing ever downhill. He is immovable. Now, the cry used to be for tolerance, by which we meant we have very strong differences, but we will not let those be a cause of hatred or violence between us. Now, it is something else, where all convictions are softened to second or third place, while we all agree to enjoy the world as much as we can. But truth is not like a conviction— Conviction might be a matter of personal opinion, but truth is like a great mountain, solid and immovable, whether we like it or even acknowledge it. Christianity is not a set of convictions. It is a truth, the most offensive thing imaginable. Jesus is a rock, all right, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, as Romans 9.33 says. A rock is offensive in your shoe because it is an inconvenience. If we said, away with all rocks, we would wish the planet right out from under our feet. But a rock is also the only refuge from the raging seas. The shipwrecked soul doesn't curse the rock because it is immovable. He clings to it, weeping for gratitude. Remember, when Jesus tells us the truth, he doesn't say, you are on your own now deal with it. He offers us a way out. As John said, for the law was given through Moses, grace 
and truth came through Jesus Christ, John 1.17. Truth and grace. Anytime, every time Jesus pulls the rug out from under us, he extends his hand to lift us to a place of refuge. Sometimes those he reaches his hand to are so far out of the mainstream, it is scandalizing. I hope that you have been enjoying these excerpts from Beautiful Outlaw, my new book about Jesus, as much as I've been enjoying reading them to you. And we've got more exciting news. We are offering a live Beautiful Outlaw event, broadcast free, online, over the internet, Monday evening, November 14th. This is a fantastic way for your church or your home group or just a group of friends to get together and share this message. It's a free simulcast, which we're calling the Outlaw Cast. It's available online. For more information about that, come to beautifuloutlaw.net.